The views, information, or opinions expressed during this podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Clean Coders and its employees. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another Clean Coders podcast. Uh, we're back with Uncle Bob. Uncle Bob, do you want to say hello and... Hello from the middle of the country where we're all hunkered down, you know, underneath the coronavirus umbrella. (laughs) Whenever I'm stuck on what to learn next, a lot of times I just go back to the fundamentals and think about how I can make those things more automatic. The reason is, is because then when I focus on the fundamentals, I'm able to actually level up in all the other areas that I'm trying to learn. So I teamed up with Kyle Simpson to focus on the fundamentals of JavaScript. Kyle wrote the books, You Don't Know JS Yet. And his Getting Started ebook goes over just the fundamental fundamentals, so to speak, of JavaScript. And we're putting together a 30-day challenge where you can actually level up on this stuff, get it down pat, and then you can go and learn all of the other things that you're doing that are based on these things. So if you go sign up for the challenge, you can do it at devchat.tv bookcamp. That was Kyle's idea you can get the following as part of the challenge. You get daily training videos, which are worth about 150 bucks. You get daily exercises and homework, which again, are about worth about 97 bucks, especially with the coaching that we give you around them. You get access to the private Slack channel, which is worth about 20 bucks. You get access to a premium podcast series that Kyle and I are going to record. It's an eight-part podcast series where we talk through all the pieces of the book. You'll get three Q&A calls per week, and that puts you at about a $1,779 value. And what's great is you also get then the audio from the podcast, you get the video from the training, you get the experience from working, and you get the visual reading learning from the book. So you're going to learn this in multiple ways. Once again, go sign up at devchat.tv slash bookcamp, devchat.tv slash bookcamp, and you can get it for $197. If you use the code JSJabber, you can get it for $147 instead. So go check it out right now, devchat.tv slash bookcamp. I know, right? We were just talking before this. I have two family members that are kind of on the front lines of this. One of them's a nurse anesthetist, actually out in your neck of the woods. He lives up north of Chicago. Yeah. And then my brother-in-law, he lives like a mile from here, is a police officer. And so he's out there, you know, doing the good work that way. They're on but the yeah, front line. It's, it's crazy. Oh, boy. The rest of us, I mean, I, I went from working from home to working from home. So, I mean, <laughs> you know. Yeah, well. Pretty much the same for me, except that I'm not on airplanes now. Yeah, yeah. Well, I am putting on some remote conferences, so hopefully we can get you to some of those, if nothing else, right? Love to. Love to. Yeah. I think we lined you up for the Rails remote conf at the end of June. Great. We're, we're looking forward to that. Yeah, you can find all that at devchat.tv slash conferences. But yeah, let's get back to the, the programmer's oath. I think we finished number four, if I remember right. I and and four, if we do number yeah. five twice, then so be it. I don't think we did five. I don't think we did either. Yeah. Okay, so so five, five, uh, which says, and and I'll repeat the beginning again, I promise that to the best of my ability and judgment, number five, I will fearlessly and relentlessly improve my creations at every opportunity. I will never degrade them. I put this in here because I have this belief that human beings improve things. Nature tends to degrade things. Human beings improve things. We're in this constant battle against entropy, Mm -hmm. against the the slow 
degradation of things. So we all maintain our homes. We all maintain our cars. We all maintain our health and our lives. Or we pay and, for it. <laughs> well, yeah, it, it is costly. And we all should be maintaining our code. And by that, I mean that the code should constantly be improving from day to day, from week to week, from month to month. The design and the structure of every system should be getting better, not be getting worse. Right. So one thing that I'm wondering about then is that a lot of times we look at improvements as like added features or things like that, but that's not what you're talking about, right? No, not at all. Yeah, it's not added features here. This is this is the internal structure of the code, the internal self-consistency and the way the modules are arranged and the interfaces and the coupling and the, the cohesion, all of those lovely designy kinds of things should all be improving to the effect that the more improved it is, the easier it is to make f- future changes, the easier it is to extend and reuse and uh, keep clean. And it'd be easier to add features to. Yeah. So uh, there are a couple of things here. One is relentlessly. And you talked about, yeah, every day or basically every time you work on the code, right, things should be getting better. But fearlessly, what do you mean by that? Well, why doesn't this happen normally? <laughs> you know, why, why is it that most software systems actually do degrade with time and turn into legacy code? And my answer to that is that it's fear. People are afraid to do the one thing that would improve a system, and that would be to clean it. And, and the reason they're afraid is because when a system gains a certain level of complexity, nobody can predict what will happen if you change the line of code. Right. And they're afraid. They're, they don't want to make the changes. They don't want to clean something. You bring something up on your screen, it's a hideous mess, and you think, I'm not going to be the one to clean that. Yeah. Well, the other thing is, is that I've also run into it where there are business pressures, right? So they don't want you cleaning the code. They want you adding those new features, right? Get, get the new stuff in. I think that's a really interesting one because most programmers would say that the business doesn't want us to clean the code. On the other hand, <laughs> if you asked the business, do you want this code to be clean or do you want it to be a, a mess that takes everybody 10 times longer than it ought to to work in? Well, if you put it that way. Well, but that is the issue, isn't it? No, it's totally the issue. It's (laughs) totally the issue. But what you need is you need an advocate that's willing to go to bat for you with whoever management is, right? Because it's kind of a nebulous term. But you need somebody who's willing to go to bat for you and say, look, the reason we can continue to work on this code base and produce what you want at the speed that you want is because we're maintaining the code base. Well, yes. I mean, and, and now you're saying that we need an advocate. Well, somebody has to say it. Somebody has to say it. Yes, someone does, but it does not have to be one person. That's it fair. should be all of us in unison. I, I like that. I like that a lot. <laughs> we should yeah. be our own advocates for this. And, and you know, this is a, one of the aspects of being a professional. Professionals mm-hmm. know how best to get the job done. Man, the managers don't. Business people don't. They have no idea how to get this done. They depend on us. We have to tell them. And they're not going to always like what we tell them, but it doesn't matter. You know, you go to a lawyer, that lawyer is a professional, and the lawyer tells you what to do. And you may not like what the lawyer tells you what you have to do. (laughs) 
<laughs> you go to a doctor because that doctor's a professional. That doctor's going to tell you what to do. You may not like hearing right. what that doctor has to tell you, but that, that is the nature of being a professional. You often have to give bad news to people who don't want to hear it, but it is the news they absolutely must hear and react to. Yep. I remember last week we talked, or not last week, but two weeks ago when we talked before, we had a long conversation about trust. And yes. I think that's where a lot of this comes in too, is that, so I've worked for people that basically said, I don't want you writing tests, right? I'm not going to pay you to spend time writing tests, or I'm not going to spend spend money having you work on code that should have been better in the first place or things like that, right? And, you know, and so I, I just kind of make the point, well, you know, it pays off. <laughs> <laughs> the deeper we get into this, right? And sometimes they buy it, and sometimes I just dot get ignored the slash test folder. But sometimes, and there, it, it seems like it's about half and half. Where if I go to a, a manager or somebody like that, you know, with my team, or sometimes even without the team, and say, "Look, we need to be doing these things so that we can move quickly and you know deliver for you right in a professional and and meaningful way." And half the time, they'll look at me and say, well, can you put it off? Or we don't really want to do that. And the other half of the time, they'll just look at me and go, okay. And I've, I'm just as terrified under both circumstances to go bring it up. So I, I, like, I like the idea that you're saying, look, get together, go to, you know, go to the people who are telling you what to do and make sure they understand the trade-offs of what, they, what you're afraid they're going to tell you not to do. You know, I... I even wonder why you would bother to tell them at all. That's fair. Right. Because it is not really their business how we achieve the goals that they set for us. Yeah, that's fair. And I think it's interesting too that for the most part, that's, you know, you bring that up. Most of the people I've worked for as a freelancer and as an employee, they never actually came and looked at what I was doing or how I was doing it. Right. Now, what happens a lot of times is the programmers, because they, Maybe they're afraid that they're doing the wrong thing. Maybe they're afraid they're doing something the boss wouldn't like or something. So they will go ask for permission. Oh, is it okay if we write tests? Is it okay if we refactor? Well, the answer to that's going to be no. Yeah. Because it's an unfair question to ask. The boss doesn't know, right, how to answer that question. Doesn't have the knowledge, he or she doesn't have the knowledge. So what it sounds like to a manager is that you're trying to shed risk onto that manager. Yeah. So later on, you can go back and say, well, you're the one who told us we could write tests. <laughs> yep. Yeah, that's yeah. true. I like it. So what's your definition of degrading the, the code? Well, I mean, we've all been in the situation where we have purposely degraded some code. And, and the way you do that is you've got some new feature to add or some mm-hmm. bug to fix. And there's, there's a, the right way to do it. And then there's the wrong way to do it. But the wrong way to do it will get you done uh, faster, right. although at much cost later on. And so we use the, the fast approach. We break the design rules. We, we circumvent the conventions that we've got. We don't write the necessary tests. We don't clean up afterwards. And we leave the code in a worse state than we started. This is kind of the, the inverse of the Boy Scout principle. The Boy Scout principle yeah. says you check the code in cleaner than you checked it out. Degrading it would be checking it in dirtier than you checked it out. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, and yeah, to a certain degree, if I'm adding a new feature, yeah, a lot of times I kind of have to pull one piece apart 
and essentially degrade it for a minute so that I can wire the new stuff in. But at the end of the day, yeah, do I come back to the principles that we've already talked about? You know, for example, number three, you know, there's a repeatable proof now that the new code works, right? Am I doing frequent small releases so that I know that each step along the way actually does what it's supposed to? You know, am I taking these other steps? And so, yeah, when you're talking about degrading the code, it's I am less certain now that it works than I was before. That would be possibly you're less certain that it works, uh, maybe because you had to turn off a test or you didn't mm-hmm. you didn't properly refactor a test, or it could be that you've left the code in a worse structure than before, right? right? And now it's going to be harder for other people to understand and maintain and, and develop. Yep. And I just want to point out again, this is to the best of your ability and judgment, right? So Always. if you're not sure, Always. do your best, right? Always. And, and get somebody to look over your shoulder and ask them, hey, is this the best? Is there some way I can do this better? You know, a little bit of pair programming doesn't hurt. Yep. All right. Well, let's talk about number six. And I have uh, horror stories <laughs> that I could tell related to this. <laughs> uh, okay. So uh, number six, with the, with the preamble, I will do all that I can to keep the productivity of myself and others as high as possible. I will do nothing that decreases that productivity. So, yeah, I mean, I've worked at places where, and, you know, they were terrific coders. They, they knew their stuff. And when they left, we were more productive a man down. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I consulted at a company many, many years ago, and it was a standing joke. They had a fairly large team, uh, but about four people that were actually competent. Mm-hmm. And so the four people who were competent would come in on the weekends and clean up the mess that everybody else made. Okay. Right. And then at some point, the managers all said, oh, we're really behind. Everybody comes in on, on the weekends. And that's when productivity stopped entirely. <laughs> <laughs> that's terrible. <laughs> that's a true story. That's terrible. <laughs> yeah. I, so I worked on a contract team. They were based out in Chattanooga. And the company doesn't exist anymore, so I'm not going to make anybody feel bad. But we had a product manager and we would have like three days worth of estimations every two weeks, right? And, you know, and they just come in and change stuff willy-nilly. And I mean, that really hurt things. <laughs> because we'd, we'd hang, we just spend the, the, the rest of the two weeks dreading that meeting coming up again, really. And then they would just change it out from under us with no notice. And so <laughs> after all that, it just, yeah. So morale, I think, comes into this a bit. Oh, sure. Morale comes into it a lot. You can, you can, you can kill productivity really fast by making sure that, that uh, nobody knows what the heck is going on. And, and the one mm-hmm. thing they do know is that everything's going to change out from under them. Yep. So how do you decrease other people's productivity? That the, the real focus of this particular item in the oath is that you're not going to do anything that reduces the productivity of others. <laughs> so, and so how do, you, how do you reduce the productivity of others? And one of the ways is, let's say that everybody on the team writes tests except for you. You're the wow. one guy. <laughs> you know? You're that guy. Yeah, you're that guy. You don't write tests. And you screw everybody else on the team, right? Because nobody can get the the productivity benefit of having a nice, clean set of tests. 
Yeah. Or let's say that you're the guy who always keeps the the module checked out for five days and then mm -hmm. check it in and have to do this horrible merge, which breaks everybody else's code. <laughs> I think the term is merge hell. <laughs> okay. Well, well, these are all things that degrade everybody else. Yes. Right? They, not only you, right, but they degrade everyone else. If you leave a mess in the code, if you leave the code uh, insufficiently tested, if you check the code out and hold it for long periods of time, all of these things degrade everybody else's ability to be productive. The whole team suffers because of this. Right. So this particular goal in the oath is about watching out for everybody else, making sure everybody else can make progress mm -hmm. as well as you. Yeah, that makes sense. And a lot of this really just comes to team consensus. I mean, I talked to Chris, Chris Powers last week. And, you know, he, he was talking about a lot of this and it's like, Hey, look, you know, we tried, we, we try all kinds of things all the time, but everybody's on board and boy, if that doesn't help, right? Yeah. Everybody's Everybody trying to make board. it work. Everybody knows what they're doing. Everybody follows the rules. There's not the, you know, the one or two lone guys out there breaking everything. I remember um, I was at a uh, company and we were trying to convert them to uh, agile. Mm-hmm. And uh, there were a couple of programmers, about three of them, that were completely anti. They didn't want to go agile at all. They thought it was stupid, right? And um, these three guys would meet in a conference room and plot ways to undermine everybody else. Yeah. And we caught them at it. <laughs> right. And, well, I won't say what happened to them. <laughs> well, it. I mean, that kind of thing is, it, it, it makes it harder on everybody else. I mean... If you're right, you don't need to sabotage it to be right, right? Well, if it's right. not going to work, it's just not going to work. But yeah, one other thing that comes to mind with this is just, I've been on a couple of teams where we engaged in a, a ton of horseplay, right? Yes. We'd goof off all the time. Of course, the, the other one is, is we had meetings all the time. And both of those, I think, I mean, horseplay to a certain degree makes, made it easier for us to work together. And so you could argue that... You know, it helped productivity in some ways, but sometimes we took it too far and we were goofing off too much. But the meetings, meetings just kill productivity, in my opinion. So I have a rule for meetings. I invented this rule 20 years ago. When the meeting gets boring, leave. <laughs> now, now, of course, you do that politely. You know, you find a, a convenient break point in the meeting and you say, pardon me, everybody, but I'm going to leave now because apparently I'm no longer needed. I have to say it a little more tactfully than that. But there, it's actually pretty important because you could mm -hmm. you can sit in a meeting for, for 90 minutes or 180 minutes being completely useless and gaining no new information when you could be out there you know, doing some real work. So yep. meeting discipline, part of meeting discipline is knowing when to get out of the meeting. The other half of meeting discipline is knowing when not to go in the first place. Yep. Yeah, my my meeting rules are you have to have an agenda before you start. And the other thing is, is you have to look at your agenda. And if you could cut people out of the meeting, or if you only need one person for one part of the agenda, only have them show up for the parts they're relevant for, or if you can split it into two meetings and just cover the one thing that these people have to be for, and then the other meeting with the other group of people that they have to be there for, you know, look at doing that so that, yeah, you don't have people who don't need to be there for a good chunk of the meeting sitting through it. Right. That would be nice. 
It would also uh, be nice if, if they had an agenda and then followed the agenda. Yes. Oh, that's, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that's given with having an agenda is following the agenda. <laughs> so, so, so you have a, a meeting with an agenda and that's your first gate, right? You're not going to go yeah. to the meeting if there's no agenda. But then the next gate is if we're not on the agenda, it's time to leave. Yeah. The meeting must right, be over. Sorry. It's not what we're, <laughs> that's not why we're here to meet. The function of a good manager is to keep their people out of meetings, right? So good tech leads, good managers, you don't call meetings, you keep people from getting into meetings. <laughs> try, yeah. try to preserve the productive hours for as long as you possibly can. Yeah, I agree, especially since if I really get into the code, yeah, I'll disappear into it for hours. And so if you're interrupting me, I come right back out of that flow. Sure. And there's only so many productive hours in a day, and it's probably not eight. It's yep. probably not even six. You know, you mentioned horseplay. And, mm -hmm. and the horseplay is actually pretty important. I don't know how it works for you, but it works for me this way. I, I can get very creative in bursts. Yes. And those bursts might last two, three hours, maybe even four, uh, if it's a really good burst. And then I'm useless. Mm -hmm. Right. There's smoke coming out of my ears and I wander around aimlessly for a while. And and the way I replenish that is either to do something that is not creative, like go ride my bicycle or go fly my airplane or go play with my grandchildren or something like that. Or I read something that is creative, like I'll mm -hmm. get a good science fiction novel out and I'll read that. Those are things that build up that productivity juice that you then burn off the next time you get into one of those flows. No, the other thing about that is sleep. <laughs> mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Get a lot of sleep. <laughs> yep. Absolutely. <laughs> one other thing that I'm just going to throw in there that has always been a problem for me with productivity, at least when I was working in an office is that especially in open floor plans, it's the worst. Somebody will come by, Hey, I have a quick question. And just happen to come back up out of my space, right? I, I love being remote and I love having the chat because I will ignore the chat until I, you know, until I can get around to it. And so yeah. I can stay in the flow. And then when I come out of the flow and it's like, okay, I got a couple of business things to take care of, then I go take care of that then. You, do you know the Pomodoro technique? Yes. You do. Okay. So... That's a great way to deal with the interruptions and stuff like yeah. that. And if, for folks out there, if you don't know the Pomodoro technique, you can Google it. Yep. I've done that too. I've, I've used it off and on, but yeah, it's nice because it's like, you know, I'll, I'll get an urgent message and the reply will be 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah, right. The tomato's not done yet. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, is there anything else to harp on about on number six or should we go to number seven? No, let's go seven. All right. Seven. Okay, once again, with the preamble, best of my ability and so forth, I will continuously ensure that others can cover for me and that I can cover for them. This is this I put in there uh, because we refer to ourselves as teams, but we don't often behave like teams. So imagine a team of players on a field moving a ball towards the goal and in the midst of the play, one of the players trips and falls, but there's no flag on the play and the play continues. What do the other players do? And the Point other players heart. change their field position to cover the hole yep. and keep the ball going down the field. Yep. 
Now, how do we do that in software? If Bob is the database guy and Bill is the GUI guy and Jim is the middleware guy and, and Bob goes down, how does anybody work on the database? Nobody knows the database. Oh, Bob is gone. And, and so we can't touch the database. So it seems to me that a good software team knows what each other are doing and can step in and fill in for each other if somebody goes down. And people go down for all kinds of bizarre reasons. You know, you can get sick. In this era of COVID, you can Mm -hmm. get sick. But that's not the only reason people go down. Sometimes you go to work and there is absolutely nothing you can do to write a line of code. Nothing. Your brain simply will not function. Maybe you had a big fight with your wife or your husband or your significant other or whatever. And the only thing you can think about is that or or maybe, you know, maybe some terrible thing happened in your family and that's all you can think of. Or maybe, maybe the baby was crying all night and you didn't get any sleep or whatever it is. And you're just, you're just non-functional, right? And that, that happens to programmers. It's, it's, uh, uh, it happens with relative frequency, actually. And then how does the team respond to that? Well, the team ought to be able to look at that and say, okay, Bill's broken. Somebody's going to have to cover the middleware here. and be able to be able to work with each other on everything. Now, how do you achieve that? Well, <laughs> <laughs> it seems to me that if if you want to you want to make sure that someone can cover for you, then you need to have them sitting next to you for a period of time working on code with you. And of course, I'm getting it pair programming. But it, I, it I hear goes, the screams, the way. Yeah, oh, yeah. Let, go ahead and scream. You know, everybody's going <laughs> to scream. Oh, God, no, not pairing. But here's, here's the thing about that, right? It's your responsibility to make sure that someone can cover for you. It is not their responsibility to try and figure out if they can cover for you. It is your responsibility to make sure that if you go down, the team does not suffer. And so how are you going to achieve that? Now, you can do that with code reviews, maybe. Mm-hmm, Not maybe. that great, but okay. But there's almost no better way than to have somebody sit next to you for an hour and do some code with them. And then get somebody else to sit next to you for an hour, do some code with them, so that a couple of people know kind of what you're doing. And mm-hmm. then if you go down, they can step in for you. Now, now the whole pairing thing gets blown way out of proportion. Like, you don't want to pair with someone eight hours a day. And, and that is not what pairing is, right? We're not going to pair eight hours a day. You're not going to pair. There's not always going to be someone sitting next to you. But some worthwhile percentage of the time, maybe it's 30%, maybe it's 40%, somebody ought to be sitting next to you learning what you're doing, or you ought to be sitting next to somebody else learning what they are doing. So that you can behave like a team. Yep. Yeah, it makes sense. And yeah, that's with the pairing, that's usually the, the pushback that I get is it's hard and I don't want to do it all day. But, you know, to do this, you just have to do it enough, right? Yeah, just enough. It's, it, and, you, you know, if, if, you're, if you're pairing two hours out of a day, that means that you are code reviewing two hours out of a day. Yep. You know, and everybody is. Everybody is code reviewing two hours out of the day while they're also creating. Yep. And a, a pairing situation is a code review situation, but in a very different way. In most code reviews, the code is already done. And if you're the reviewer, you are not creative at all. 
You right. are simply critiquing. If you are pairing, you're reviewing code, but you're also creating. You are as invested as any other creator would be. You're one of the authors. Mm-hmm. So that, that changes the dynamic entirely. It makes for much more efficient uh, reviewing. Yep. The other thing I see is that it, it is, you know, I mean, the whole point is teaching, right? You're, you're teaching people how to cover for you. Yes. And so at that point, and, and I've seen people hire junior developers and they're like, we don't even know what to, how to parent, uh, uh, level them up or blah, 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 right? And the whole idea is this, right? So that they can contribute at a level that's at least somewhere in the realm of where we need them to if one of our senior people isn't there. And yeah, this pays off big dividends there. And oh, so perfect. it's not just sharing knowledge. It's, I mean, it's down to training and I mean, there are all kinds of benefits that come out of it. Absolutely. I mean, you're a GUI guy and you pair with the database guy. You're going to learn a lot about that backend system, aren't you? Now, maybe you yeah. never want to be a database guy. You're still going to learn a lot about that backend system. That, that would be very helpful. And if, if one day, you know, the database guy goes down, well, you can kind of pitch in and help out. It's never a bad thing to learn about aspects of the system that you are not familiar with. Yeah. Yeah. One at my last full-time job, which means it was like 10 years ago, they, yeah, we went to an Agile Roots conference out here in Salt Lake City. And, you know, we, there were two of us and we talked the rest of the team into going, including our manager. And when we came back, yeah, he started having us pair. So there were three of us working on the Rails code and three of us working on the Flash Flex code. And he had us cross training through pairing in order to do that. And it was so effective, right? Because we weren't slowed down by what I didn't know. Right. And I could ask questions about how the system worked. I could ask questions about how they organized the code. I could offer that kind of feedback based on my experience. But at the end of the day, yeah, it really did make it so that if somebody had to jump in for a day and pick something up, yeah, I got to the point where I could. Now I wasn't competent like these other guys. But if it was a relatively simple thing, I could do it. Sure. Yeah. And and yeah. like, you know, if one of those guys got really sick for for two yeah. weeks. Or if they laid half of us on, oh wait. That was when <laughs> I left, so that wasn't my problem. <laughs> but yeah. A couple of years ago, I put out a survey asking people what topics they wanted us to cover on devchat.tv. And I got two overwhelming responses. One was from the JavaScript community. They wanted a React show. And the other one was from the Ruby community and they wanted an Elixir show. So we started both. The React show though is React Roundup. And every week we bring in people from the React community and we have conversations with them about React, about the community, about open source, about what goes into React, how to build React apps, and what's going on and changing in the React community. So if you're looking to keep current on the current React ecosystem and what's going on in React, you definitely need to be checking out React Roundup. You can find it at reactroundup.com. Well, let's move on to number eight. Okay, number eight. Again, with the preamble, with to the best of my ability and so forth, I will produce estimates (laughs) that are honest, both in magnitude and precision, and I will not make promises without certainty. Okay. (laughs) So... Boy, where do I start with this one? So magnitude and precision. What do you mean by magnitude and precision? So magnitude and precision. Um, Let's see. I will probably die sometime in the next thousand years. Accurate estimate. It's very accurate, right? It's precise. it, it, It has a huge magnitude, but it's not a very precise estimate. Right. 
Now, if I wanted to be precise, I would name a date. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, you know, magnitude and precision, or maybe maybe the right word is accuracy and precision, right? So right. Uh, a thousand years is an accurate estimate. It's not very precise. June 21st, 2027. Very precise, probably not very accurate. Right. Well, I hope not anyway. <laughs> yeah, we'll keep you around for a few years longer than that. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully, right? Don't want to predict the date of my death. So this is a problem that happens with programmers all the time, right? We are given the need to estimate with precision. Can you have it done by next Friday? Mm-hmm. Well, that's precise, right? Yeah. And and do you know that you can? So Maybe. this thing says, I will produce estimates that are honest, both in magnitude and precision or accuracy and precision. Mm-hmm. Honest. Now, let's talk about the word honesty. What is the most honest estimate you can make about a software task? I don't know. Exactly right. Because you don't know. (laughs) (laughs) You do not know. Nobody knows. And no one is good at estimating. No no matter how hard we try and no matter how, how many times we think we've done this thing over and over again, there's this old rule that says everything takes three times longer than you think, even when you know this and take it into account. Mm-hmm. So we don't know. And, and what we have to be able to say to our managers and our customers and our stakeholders is, I don't know. But that's not a very useful thing to say. It's, a, it's an honest thing to say, but it's not right. very useful for them. So how can we make that more useful? And what we can do there is we can define the boundaries of our, of our uncertainty. I don't know means I'm uncertain. Now, what are the boundaries of that uncertainty? Well, okay, so I've got this task to do. Uh, how long is it going to take me? Well, uh, what if I were to give you three numbers? I could get it done maybe in three days. The odds against that are pretty high. I'd say there's 95% chance that I'm not going to get it done within three days, but I might, right. I might. If everything goes really great, I might get it done within three days. Most likely, it's going to take me seven days. And then there is a chance. It's not a very good chance, but there is a chance, maybe a 5% chance, that, it, that it's really going to take me 14. Yep. Now, that's honest. It, gives, it draws this very interesting curve around mm-hmm. your lack of knowledge. It draws a circle around your lack of knowledge and your uncertainty. And it's perfectly fair to say that to your stakeholders and your managers and so on, because it's honest. And you are telling them how, what, the, the magnitude of your uncertainty. Yep. Now, they're not going to like it. <laughs> they want to shed the risk onto you. So they want certainty. So they're going to push yep. back and say, no, come on, can't you give me a date? No, I can't give you a date. I do not right. know. Sometime within the next three to 14 days. With, uh, you know, an average of about seven. By the way, what does that seven mean? It means that the odds are about 50-50. Yeah. 50-50 chance I can get done in seven days. You know, there's a 95% yep. chance I'll get done within the next 14 days. Might be longer than that, but, you know, 95% chance I'll get done within the next 14 days. 5% chance I might get done in three days. And, of course, then as you work through that, you tighten those numbers up. Two days in, you know it's not going to be three days. You also know it's not going to be 14. Right. So you start to tighten those up and you you keep on reporting those to managers. Now, managers don't like that, of course. They want something tighter, but you can't give them anything tight. Right. Because you don't know. So managers then have to do this 
special thing, which is called management. They have to manage the risk in the project. That's why they're called managers. Managers manage risk. All right. companies manage risk. Yep. Think of the, uh, you know, the CEO, right? He gets all the salesmen in the room and says, okay, guys, what's the next, next quarter sales going to be? <laughs> yeah, those guys have come off of all kinds of numbers. Oh, well, we're gonna go. Well, no. And the the CEO looks at them all with this deadpan look and says, "Okay, great, get the hell out of here." And he has to manage the risk of what he's just heard. Same thing with programmers. Same thing with everybody else. Right now, this gets to the second part of this, right? I will make no promises without certainty. This is really critical. And it's, it's an easy trap for programmers to fall into because a manager who is skilled at personal manipulation, as all managers must be, will try to get that promise. They'll try to extract the promise. And they'll, they'll do so by using pressure techniques. We've got to have it by Friday. It, you've got it just it has to be done by Friday. And and mm-hmm. you have to be able to look at them and say, no, it's not going to be done by Friday. Sorry, there's no way I'm going to get that done by. Well, isn't there something you can do? There's got to be something you can do. No, there's nothing I can do. Could you work more hours? I'm already working all the hours I can possibly work. No, I can't get this done by Friday. You have to be able to be willing to do that. And that, that's really hard. Programmers are not good at this kind of, you know, confrontational. Uh, behavior. We didn't get into this business because we like people. <laughs> we got into this business because we like code. The managers got into their business because they like dealing with people. So we have to learn that skill. And then the, the yeah. other trap here is the, uh, the reasonable trap where the manager looks at you sincerely and says, well, will you at least try? Now, that's a real dangerous one because the the normal response is, well, of course I'll try. And what you've just done is to make a promise. You must I learned this one the hard way. <laughs> you, <laughs> the you, next week, you said exactly. that you would have it done, right? Well, I mean, it might go that way, but it's much more insidious than that because you've just promised to change your behavior. Oh, yes, I'll try. When there is no way to change your behavior. You right. have just made a promise that you you will do something different ah. to try. Oh, that's sneaky. And the implication, of course, is that prior to this, you were not trying. So it's actually an insulting question to ask. Yeah. Will you at least try? You jerk, I'm already trying. Now, don't say that. <laughs> that, that in your mind, it's like, well, what? You think I'm not trying? What the heck do you think I've been doing all this time? If, if you that, say that, by the way, think about I... It. I have a book on how to find a job. But anyway. <laughs> but yeah, no, that makes that makes total sense. <sighs> so yeah, so I, I like it. And yeah, uh, don't cave on those particular issues. Just tell them what you think it's going to take. Be honest about it. Be honest and about then, your uncertainty. Yep. And then keep them updated. Because yeah, you know, and this is one of the principles that, that has kind of come to me out of Agile is the more I work on it, the more information I have. And so then I can come back and I can refine that estimate and say, it's not going to take 14 days. It's going to take, you know, it's going to be now, you know, three to 11 days. Yes. Right. You tighten, you tighten it up. If you can tighten it up. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes you have to push it out. Yeah. That's happened too. Right. 
Yeah. Oh, you know, well, that thing I said was going to take eight days. No. Yeah. <laughs> we thought that it would, on the outside, take a week and a half. And now it's going to take two and a half weeks because this is harder than we thought. Well, that happens all the time, too. But that one of the one of the defenses against that is to be really conservative about those outside numbers. Yeah. So you say, okay, you know, the best I can do is three days. Well, that's, you know, like everything goes right. And the outside one is 14 days. And that's if everything goes wrong. So you want to be pushing yeah. that number out pretty far. Yeah, makes sense. So what about number nine? I will never well, stop. One, la- one last thing on eight. Okay. And then we'll go to nine. And the last thing on eight is this. Sometimes you will make a promise. When you make a promise, you must know that you can achieve it. Never make a promise that's speculative. Right. If you know you can achieve it, you can promise it. Otherwise, you're going to get caught in something. Because once you make the promise, you must deliver. Yeah. Okay. Nine. Uh, I will never stop learning and improving my craft. This one is the kind of obvious one that you have to put into something like this. Our, our industry is a, a really bizarre industry because everything is always changing. Mm-hmm. There's always a new platform, always a new language, always a new framework, always a new methodology, always some new thing. And in order to, in order to keep up, you have to be constantly learning. You're always drinking from the fire hose. Yep. Uh, and, and that's just the nature of being a programmer. If, if you are not drinking from the fire hose, you will get behind and eventually you will have to leave the, the profession. You'll have to go somewhere else. So we always have to be learning, always improving our craft, always learning new things, always trying new things out, always practicing, always, always getting better and better. I, I like to do the comparison to a martial artist, uh, mm-hmm. someone who's very good at karate or judo or something like that. And you, you get some, you know, 12th degree black belt. And the 12th degree black belt is constantly learning, constantly refining, constantly getting better and better. That's the way they talk about it themselves. They're still students. So all of us need to, need to be in that constant student mode. Now, I said this was a bizarre industry. And the reason I said that is that we all have to stay in this constant student mode. But is there anything new that's happened in our industry within the last 30 years? Is this a trick question? Well, <laughs> I mean, we've seen new, new languages. There's new, new languages, new but are they, new? are they new? But yeah, they, yeah, I've talked to a number of language designers and they tend to recycle ideas out of other languages. Of course. Right. So is Go, Go. Is that, now, Go is a new language, relatively, mm-hmm. like about eight years old now, something like that. Yeah, something like that. Is it new? Looks a lot like C. Yeah, Looks yeah it has a like different C. combination yeah. of ideas in it. Yeah, it's, got, it's like a little mix, mix of, but is there any idea in Go that we have not seen before? I honestly couldn't tell you. I don't think so. Or how about Swift? You know, the new, the new iOS language, right? We're all doing Swift. All, all, the, all the iPhone people are doing Swift now. Any, any idea in that language that we haven't seen before? It's a different combination, of course, but anything we haven't seen before? Or um, uh, Elm. Elm's cool. That's mm-hmm. a cool language. Yeah. Anything in there we haven't seen before. And, and as time goes on, the languages that, we, we, that seem to us to be new are really just recycled concepts from older languages. 
there was a time when there were new concepts coming in. It's brand new oh, yeah. concepts. Nobody ever thought of before, but, but we're past that. We're well past that. And now we're into this mode of stirring the pot of all the concepts and pulling out new mixtures. Mm-hmm. But there are no new concepts going in. Yep. You know, it's interesting too, because I, I wind up hosting quite a few of the shows on devchat.tv. And so, you know, I see a lot of frameworks, a lot of languages, a lot of other ideas. And yeah, I mean, just to give you an example, I mean, React, right? The, the big thing that people are still talking about is lifecycle hooks. <laughs> and, you know, it, it's not a new idea. In there? The, the way that they brought it in and the way that they implemented it make it easier to implement your code it makes it cleaner, it makes it faster, but at the end of the day, it doesn't, you know, it, it's not a new idea. Right. It's just a better implementation of an old idea. Okay, maybe better, or just another implementation. Maybe it is yeah. better, I don't know. Well, maybe it's better for React developers. Maybe maybe it's better for JavaScript or maybe, who knows? Yeah. I mean, so th- that's, the, that's the thing that, that is kind of at the, the end of this thing, at the end of this list, right? I'm never going mm-hmm. to stop learning, but the reason... I'm never going to stop learning is that people keep on inventing things out of old things. Right. And then the second part is, and improving my craft. And that's when you look at all this chaos that's out there, all these languages and all these frameworks and all this churn, this constant churn going on, and you refine it down to the essence. And that, Mm -hmm. by the way, that's what the martial artist does too, right? The martial artist is always learning these moves and techniques, but, but once you've gotten really good at it, it really boils down to a few really simple principles that you can apply in a lot of different ways. Yep. So you get both both halves of that in this last element of the oath. Yep. So one thing that I've discussed with a number of people is, is the idea of staying current. And a lot of people get wrapped up around the axle because there's so much stuff coming your way, right? I mean, even if it's not a new idea, it's something that I haven't learned before that is going to make my craft better as I understand how it plays into whatever system I'm building in, you know, Go or Ruby or Angular or React or Vue or whatever, right? Uh, iOS. Anyway, it's it's interesting because, yeah, improving your craft may be learning some of these older ideas and the way that they're implemented in a newer system. But one thing that that I see people get caught up on is, yeah, what of all these things should I be picking up? And I have I have my answer, but I'm curious what your answer is. You know, how do I decide? I've got a bazillion things coming out. Which ones are important for me to learn? You know, that's a real tricky one uh, because there is a bazillion things. And my answer has always been to follow whatever piques my interest for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I do, I do software for the, the, the sheer joy of it. I just yeah. love it. And so I'll, you know, I'll read about some idea and, and it won't interest me. And I'll, okay, I'll pass on that one. I'm not going to. Get involved with that. Maybe it's some you know really important concept, but okay, it didn't interest me. I'm not going to follow that one. Uh, and I'll read something else, and I'll just get latched onto it, and I'll follow that one to the end. For years and years, I thought Lisp was a terrible idea. I didn't know anything about it, <laughs> but other people had told me that it was an awful language. And I, I looked at some Lisp code that had too many parentheses, and I thought, oh, terrible, terrible, awful. And uh, somebody gave me a book, a book recommendation, and I got it off of eBay, actually. It was mm-hmm. a Structure and Interpretation of Computer Programs. And it sat on my desk for a good long time. And then about, I guess, 12 years ago, I picked it up and I started reading it. 
just out of idle curiosity. And all of a sudden it just grabbed me, just grabbed me. And I'm reading this book and fascinating stuff in this book. And I'm just throwing the pages and I have become a Lisp head. I'm a Lisp guy now. I write all my code is in Lisp. That's closure. I write in closure. Yeah. Everything is closure. Right. And I, I, I'm very happy with that decision. So I don't know how to answer the question other than to say, you know, follow your interests, follow your, follow mm-hmm. what uh, intrigues you. And it's always paid well for me. Yeah. My, my approach is a little bit split on that. Cause yeah, I, I agree that probably at half of your learning should be stuff that you're just interested in, right? Regardless of whether or not it applies directly to your current job or anything else. But I also tell people, you know, sit down and think about where you want to end up, right? You know, it could be three or five years, whatever, right? And it doesn't have to be a permanent decision, right? But it's, you know what, if you're a junior developer, you know it, in three years, I want to have a senior development job. If, you know, I want to go work for that company, I want to go, you know, be in that place. And then half of your learning should be aimed at that goal, right? So if you want to be a senior developer at the company you work at and their stack is, you know, Elixir and React, then you know what you're learning half your learning should be elixir and react and the other half should be gee whiz this is really cool and i want to level up in programming in general and i'm going to expose myself to something new if but you know as soon as your goals change then redirect you don't lose anything for any of that work but i really like the results and goal oriented approach but either way right i mean ultimately at the end of the day at the basic level, you want to be happy with your job. <laughs> you know, you want to make enough to pay the bills. And so, you know, for, for you, Bob, where, where you're coming from, I mean, that makes a ton of sense because you're happy with where you're at. And so you're going to be happy with learning, you know, closure or whatever else. You know, you may pick up something else next week and go, you know, this is now the bee's knees. And, you know, and that's fine. <laughs> and for other folks... One thing that I've seen is that they go from because they're playing, right? Instead of, you know, doing, you know, direct learning on stuff that will help them in their job today, they figure out, you know what? I really like this other thing more than I like what I do now, right? And like we said, because these ideas tend to circulate through the system over and over and over again, I already know a good chunk of what goes into this, you know, given just from my experience. And so, yeah, then they go from, you know what? I really loved building websites with Ruby on Rails, but now I want to go write Apple TV apps. And then a few years later, right, they're playing around and it's like, you know what? This embedded programming system is amazing, right? Yeah. And so they move to that. And, and there's no rhyme or reason other than that that's where their interests lie. They can get a job that pays the bills and they're happy there. And if that's all that you wind up with, I think you're in good shape. So I, I think you just need to figure out where you want, because if you're highly ambitious and you want to be at a particular company in a particular position, then you've got to find out what those requirements are and spend some of your time learning those things and honing your craft that way. But if you're not, if you've got some other thing in mind, I just want to learn whatever's going to help me speak at conferences, right? Then, then start paying attention to that and go learn that. The one thing that you must not do is stop. Yes. Agreed. And it was the pragmatic programmers who I think said, you know, learn a new language every year. Yep. This is great advice, just tremendous advice. And it doesn't matter really what the language is. Now, maybe you're goal oriented and you're going to learn some, you know, language that's really popular in the industry, or maybe you're not goal oriented and you want to learn some bizarre language that nobody's ever going to write a line of code in. 
either way, learn a new language every year, learn a new framework every year, learn a new discipline every year, constantly stretch your brain. (laughs) Yep, I agree. And what's interesting about that is even if you go pick some obscure language that hasn't had code written in it seriously for several years, you know, like 20, 30, 40, 50 years, you're going to start seeing those influences in whatever language you're using because it's everywhere. Uh, yes, well, it'll certainly affect the way you write code. By the way, there's a big cry right now for Gobol programmers. All the states, oh, yeah. you know, all the states have trouble trying to modify their uh, mainframes. Yeah, their mainframes for the new rules for COVID. <laughs> yeah, the unemployment stuff—they can't make the unemployment payments because it's all old Cobol systems that nobody understands. Yeah. I actually, heard a governor governor on TV saying, "Are there any Cobol programmers out there?" <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting too. I read a book, I can't remember which one, but yeah, they talked about, look, there's a certain level of you get paid to be on the bleeding edge and, you know, kind of be out there in front learning the new stuff because then you get to teach everybody else. But then they pointed out there's a lot of money in the trailing edge where, you know, people have moved, you know, moved out of systems. You know, they wrote the COBOL code 30 years ago and now they're retired and don't want to go back to work or they passed away, or there's just some other reason why they can't or won't do it. And they need those people so badly. And nobody's good at getting into COBOL because it's not a widely used language. Or if it is, it's not a super exciting one to be in. Yep. Yeah. So leading edge and the trailing edge. <laughs> yep. Cool. Well, we've gotten all the way through it. Do you have any final words on the programmer's oath? Well, the reason I put it together several years ago now, it was 2015 I wrote that, was because I thought that we as a profession needed some kind of framework of, of ethics and of standards to, to hang our, our profession upon. And right now we don't really have anything. So I thought, well, maybe, maybe these would be nine points that could start that discussion. Now, I, mm-hmm. I don't know that these are the final final points or whether, you know, they're valuable in that regard at all. But I thought it would be a good way to at least start the, start the discussion, get people thinking about what kind of ethics and standards and promises we should make to this civilization that so heavily depends upon us. Well, cool. Well, I encourage people to go check it out. We'll have a link in the show notes. All right. Well, um, we've kind of chatted our way around COVID-19 already. I think last time we talked about your piloting hobby. Oh, yes. Um, I am a little bit curious just to kind of give people another flavor of Uncle Bob. I see some photographs behind you of like uh, Jupiter and an eclipse and things like that. Oh, are yeah. You, are you a hobbyist astronomer or? I am. Yeah. Yeah. I've got a nice telescope. I get it out from time to time and look at the stars. Uh, space has always been an interest of mine. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm happy to go out on a good winter's night and take a look at Orion's Nebula or, or mm-hmm. gaze at a few globular clusters. And I, used to, um, I used to contribute observations to the American Variable Star Observers organization. I don't do that anymore because there are better machines that do it now. But they used to depend <laughs> on amateur astronomers to do these observations. So that was a lot of fun. Interesting. So... This is something that I've kind of wanted to get into. And here in Utah, I can drive 10 minutes. I'm outside the city with a mountain between me and all of the uh, light pollution. So if I were going to pick up a telescope to look at stuff with my kids, 
Do you have a recommendation? There are a number of very good telescopes that don't cost too much money. I would look at either the the Mead, M-E-A-D-E, or the Celestron, C-E-L-E-S-T-R-O-N. Those are two brand names. They're very high quality. They all have entry-level, they both have entry-level telescopes that will cost you something on the order of $250 to $500. Good optics, easy to use, great for the kids, uh, great for you if you want to look at the craters of the moon or or just a couple of you know interesting things in the nighttime sky. There's a lot you can see with a little telescope. And then from there, if you if you get really interested, you can you can spend an awful lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> But you know those those machines those little telescopes are are very powerful for first time observers. You you can see Saturn's rings, you can see the red spot on Jupiter, you can you can uh, see the crescent of Venus. Lots of things you can see in just those. And a, a great way to get started if you don't even want to spend that much money. Great way to get started is to get a good pair of binoculars mm-hmm. and just look at things with binoculars. Look at the moon with binoculars. Look at a Look at stars with binoculars and you will find all kinds of colors that you can't see with the naked eye. You can find the Andromeda Nebula with a good pair of binoculars. That has plenty to do with just binoculars. Good deal. I'll have to check that out. All right. Well, thanks for coming, Bob. This has been fun. Yeah, my pleasure. I'll see you next time, I'm sure. Yep, absolutely. All right. Well, uh, until next time, folks, Max out. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.